Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Carol, how's it going? Uh, it's a little exhausting, but always a pleasure to speak with you, Matt. This is the first week of the release of your new book, correct? It is. You will own nothing um, out of the gate. I feel like we've been talking about it for you know a year now, but uh, but now it's birthed into the world and people can have it in their hot little hands and actually have the opportunity if you get the hard copy to own something. Yeah, this this could be the last thing that we physically own, according to your book. Well, it's not really according to uh, to the book or even to me. It's according to the World Economic Forum. And, you know, that's kind of where the, the cheeky title comes from. I'm sure when you saw this go around social media like I did, Matt, you know, you see you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And you're like, oh, OK, somebody took this out of context. Right. Because World Economic Forum is business and political elite. Like they couldn't possibly be predicting the end of private property. That's ridiculous. And then, of course, you go right onto their Twitter stream. You can do it today. You see the video, eight predictions for the world in 2030. And that number one prediction is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. So several things jump out to me. One, obviously, being a, somebody who champions wealth creation opportunities for more than a quarter of a century. Number one thing I know is that wealth comes from ownership. You have to own assets that have the opportunity to retain value or appreciate in value. So to have a bunch of elites saying you're not going to have those wealth creation opportunities seems a little crazy. And then you'll notice the phrasing, you'll own nothing and be happy you will, not we will. <laughs> they're yeah. not including themselves in the prediction. So it's, this is all about you and their prediction for what you're going to do. And then, oh, by the way, you'll be happy trying to get you to buy into this as like some kind of amazing benefit for you, because if you buy in, then they don't have to force this upon you. So it's, it's actually selfless on their part by owning everything. They'll take all that burden. And I guess all that, all that wealth will not make them happy, but we'll be happy because we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Right. It'll be just from the goodness of their hearts. Let me unburden you with all of these assets that will create generational wealth for you. We'll just take that out of your hand. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to call the plumber, You know, even though the, the house is the biggest asset on household balance sheets. We'll just we'll make sure you don't have to think about those things so you can be happy and we'll just run around very stressed out all the time. You know, the, the, the WEF, it, it strikes me as I think about everything I see out of them, as crazy as it is, and it gets crazier every year that they gather, but it, it kind of reminds me of, of the other kind of socialism before Marx came along and decided that socialist revolution had to be a violent overthrow uh, of the bourgeoisie. There was this sort of scientism version of that where they they just want like it is sort of the seeds of modern progressivism where, you know, the elites, the really smart people, the people that went to the right universities that came from the right families, um, they would sort of manage everything, not not just financial systems, but but everything from the top down. And so when I see the the WEF saying stuff like that, they're they're basically saying we're we're a lot smarter than you are. So you, you really need to trust us with this and we need to. Uh, replace the market with this more rational system of allocating things. And, and I guess that includes uh, eating bugs, I, I guess. I don't know. But I assume, by the way, the sequel, I'll give you this title if you want it. 
Um, the sequel should. The sequel Royal, should. Wait, wait, wait. Let's just negotiate now. Royalty free and perpetuity across media. Yes, absolutely. Um, the the next the the sequel to this book should be Let Them Eat Bugs. I think. Um, but but maybe your publisher won't like that. I don't know. I like it. I like that. I, I think that's uh, that's very catchy. No, it's interesting that you say that that was kind of the you know previous incarnation because when I think about Klaus Schwab who runs the WEF. He's been at this since 1971. He is an engineer, so this you know kind of science guy by background, and he started that as the European Management Forum. And at the same time, he had put out a book that had his ideas in it, and his like kind of like main thesis is around this concept of stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholder is sort of a weasel word for, you know, let me um, infringe on your property rights without having any risk. Stands very apart from a shareholder, right? If you're a shareholder, you earn ownership in a company either by putting your you know, the fruits of your labor and you get some options or a stake in the business, or you invest your capital and you take a risk and then that either pays off or it doesn't. The stakeholder is just the free rider. It's like the, the person in the group project who didn't do anything and then wants to come in and, and take over for it and say, no, you know, I had a huge stake in this. Let me make sure that I put my imprint on, on the final product and, um, and get the credit for it. And he, I mean, what a persistent motherfucker this guy is, right? Since 1971, more than 50 years that he's just been repackaging and rebranding and like trying to find a way to get it st to stick and finally, late in his Bond villain years, he's going, ah, this is this is finally coming to fruition. This is fantastic. It's great. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, <laughs> that's kind of a piece of it. The other piece is this kind of this idea that anybody's doing anything for the good of anyone else. And I share in the book um, a favorite vintage Twilight Zone episode. You may have seen it, um, but basically the aliens come down to Earth and the you know, people of Earth are like, oh, what's going on here, aliens? And the aliens go, no, no, don't worry. We've been watching you. We noticed that you have all these problems. You have wars. You have famine. We've developed technology that addresses all of this. And we just want to help you out. You know, we, we just we've done it. It's, it's worked for us. We know better. And we're going to just make your lives better. And so the people of Earth are, you know, they raise an eyebrow. They're like, uh, I don't know about this. So they put the alien through the lie detector test and he passes it with flying colors and then they start to use the technology and things seemingly start to get better. Well, while all this is going on, the alien has left a guidebook behind and the CIA is like, let's just figure out what they're saying. So they crack the code, but just to the cover is all they can get. And it's to serve man. And they're like, well, you know, that sounds noble. That's what he said. They're here to serve us and to help us out. And it all sounds great. So people start lining up to go on trips to the aliens planet and, you know, they're all going there being happy. And one of the CIA guys is like boarding the spaceship, ready to go. And somebody else from the CIA has now cracked the rest of the code and runs out to the spaceship and says, to serve man, it's a cookbook. <laughs> And that's what I think of anytime these people are like, I'm just in it for, for you. I'm like, to serve man is a cookbook. Yeah. You, the, uh, um, you know, you start off your book with, with my, my, the, my pet issue, the thing I've been obsessed about ever since lockdown started. And you even mentioned the Canadian truckers, and we'll go there in a minute. But, but it strikes me that your book is basically an explanation 
um, of the financial tools, the way that they're debasing our currency and the technology that they'll use to, to basically double down on everything that they that they beta tested during lockdowns. Um, and and I was saying early on, like the, and I have no idea what you think about this, but when I first heard vaccine passports and the ideas that, that you had to show your papers in order to go into a restaurant, I'm like, that sounds like a Chinese social credit system to me. And and all of this obsession about about databases and 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 being a good citizen by by wearing your mask and getting vaccinated, um, they were just testing us to see if we would go along with that stuff. And now they're going to take these other aspects of social credit um, and and really control everything, which is by by which your point is like if you control somebody's wealth, you you own them, and that's the bottom line. Yeah, I think, you know, my basic thesis is that we have global financial stakes shifting. And so these people who are wealthy and well-connected see changes happen. They are rhyming in history. These are things that have happened before. There are clear signposts in the global economy. And if you're somebody who's wealthy and well-connected and are doing well in the status quo and you see a massive shift happening, like, are you going to just hope that it works out for you? Or are you proactively going to try to control it and shape it and at least, you know, hope that you and your cronies come out on top? I don't think there sounds anything conspiratorial or, you know, outside of common sense that would think you would do that. I would certainly do that if that was in my purview. And so, you know, I don't know, I frankly don't know how much of this is that they planned this as a test run or that they did these things and then went, oh, wow, <laughs> that worked. I can't even believe it. What, what else could we do? But certainly the kinds of things that they're doing are meant to preserve their wealth and power. And if our ownership and freedoms have to go, you know, by the wayside, so be it. And if you buy into that, if, if that can go, uh, you know, in a, a very peaceful manner and they can they can legally rob and plunder you and take your freedoms without, you know, having to make this a, like a, a historical type of war, that's even better. So when you see things like what happened in COVID, that is an informal social credit system that is going after your social standing trying to make you socially unacceptable, which impedes your ability to create other opportunities and to participate in, in society and whatnot. It goes after your job in many cases. Lots of people lost their jobs because they wouldn't take the vax or you know, they said something, spoke out about it on social media. And then in many cases, they took the assets. They shut down businesses and took those for the public good for some period of time. As you mentioned, the trucker convoy saw their assets frozen, their bank accounts frozen. So these were all based on, on some level of social credit that was, you know, not quite just cancel culture, which we've also seen happen, but also, you know, something that was kind of like states and then, you know, kind of getting the buy-in. And the point that I make in, in You'll Own Nothing is that you have two sort of requirements in order for this to work. One is the technology. You need to have that technology to gather and analyze and store that data at scale, which obviously we have. But you also have to have the buy-in. And in China, uh, that buy-in is, is forced and coerced, right? It's a communist system. 
But here, there's something else at play, and I, I call it ROE, return on ego. There's this sort of intangible benefit that is cast upon the people who are you know, part of right think. You're part of the good people. You can put an emoji in your bio. You can wear a fun T-shirt. Maybe you get an invite to the White House and you could do a photo op, but you're considered that right and good part of society. And for that, people are willing to turn you into the state or you know whomever else and the social media companies are willing to collude with the government and so you know it it doesn't have maybe the the letter grade or the number grade assigned to it with a clear outline yet but that's a stone's throw away from social credit and given the fact that there were so many people willing to participate it does not give anybody any pause to think that they can't do it again at Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Yeah, like I, I, I was, as probably you were, I was so deeply disappointed in the sort of mindless tribalism that now seems to have taken hold where your entire identity is defined by whether or not you have a Vax emoji or a Ukraine flag in your bio. And I'm like, surely there's more to life than that. I'm hoping, I don't know. It's, it's very strange, you know, we used to have people who, you know, would go and they would practice a religion or maybe they would be their fan of the sports team and like that was their their god or at least yeah. their sport. And that has been completely usurped by sort of this weird team political kind of scenario where people don't have any sort of like borderline like principle or moral code. It's just like this is what my team said. And we've seen that. I mean, how many times have you seen the man on the street interview where they'll go out and they'll say something that the other party said and say, do you agree with it? And then they go, no, no, this was the person who said it. And then there's this like look of sheer panic of, oh, what did I just agree to? So it's not, it's really about the the messengers over the messages, which is a really, really disturbing trend and certainly not good for the trajectory of the country. By, by the way, my spirit animal is not a sports team. It is uh, Jerry Garcia, of course, and and Jerry was Jerry is a good spiritual leader for me because his entire philosophy is I don't, I don't want to tell you what to think or what to do. You got to figure that out for yourself. So at least at least not not all of these these tribal tendencies are are destructive. I want to go back to something you you touched on earlier because I, I think it's an important point. Um, I'm I'm not a smart grand conspiracy, um, sort of Dr. Evil kind of person, but I am an Adam Smith conspiracy, uh, which is the natural tendency of, of businessmen to, to try to figure out ways to game the system. And you know, the, the control of the, the, the money, the purchasing power of money um, is sort of a central player in that. And you could go back to Bretton Woods or you could go back to 1913, the creation of the Fed. I go back all the way back to Alexander Hamilton taxing whiskey to finance the first national bank. I think that's when we lost America, um, and it's been downhill ever since. But but this is just like the natural tendency of of connected people with wealth and influence to kind of rig the system against the the rest of us. And it's just a 
uh, it's this is not a new thing, right? The transfer of wealth um, by debasing the currency from working people, people with with cash in their wallets, to people that really know how to play the system, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just basic human nature. I mean, people want to accumulate power and wealth. And if you have power and wealth, you usually want to keep it. Or for some reason, you know, it's never enough. You need to keep score and keep that movement forward and gain more. And I go back even further in the book. I go all the way back to Rome and how, you know, the Roman Empire was started with stable currency, like having sound money was really a key principle that kept them alive for a long time and, and really strong for a long time until Nero came around and he was the first one to call on the coins and he would either uh, melt them down and issue them in, you know, smaller kind of size and keep that extra silver precious metal for himself and use that to finance the armies, or they would replace some of the content of the silver with something that was cheaper. Again, like the physical debasement of the currency where, where the idea came from, and they sort of imploded from the inside. And I trace that through this sort of different um, centers of the global financial universe, which before us was the British and before the British was the Dutch. And it's the same story. It's, it's that history rhyming. You know, it's not exactly the same story, but it you know, sounds pretty close. And, uh, and we see these, these sort of same kinds of things where the people who are in power, they take on lots of debts and then you get the, the infighting and then the, the, the people who are poor are jealous of the people who are wealthy and somebody's tipped the scales. And it really is the same kinds of things over and over again. The founding fathers definitely predicted this. They definitely saw this and tried to do what they could to come up with a, a system that would you know keep this in check for as long as possible. And obviously the people who were managing that were sort of derelict in their duties to, to keep that strong and did what they could to game the system. And so, yeah, we've been on this sort of slow downward spiral for quite some time. But as 80 years into this center of the global financial universe after Bretton Woods, um, you know, we, we, we're getting long in the tooth. We have lots of debt to GDP, 125 percent public debt to GDP. The IMF says that, you know, it starts to get unwieldy somewhere in the 70 to 80 percent range. So, you know, we're over that. The Treasury has said we're on an unsustainable fiscal path. The CBO said an unsustainable fiscal path. I mean, this isn't you know hidden. And then on the the global stage, we know that the Fed has not kept the currency stable. You know, forget about the d domestic economy, but on the global stage either, as you know, the manager of the global reserve currency, which has created all kinds of issues for countries around the world who are now getting rid of some of their reserves and looking for other trading currencies as well because they don't want to be beholden to the U.S. And that final nail in the coffin was the Biden administration when Russia invaded Ukraine saying we're going to freeze access to your reserves, you know, which was just unheard of. And, you know, I think when you look back in history, that's going to be like a, a key turning point that they're going to point to, because who wants to give the United States the privilege of being the world's holder of the reserve currency if at any point in time the U.S. can weaponize that and go, sorry, you can't have access to it. I mean, it just makes no sense. So these are like very clear signposts, which is why you have Joe Biden making speeches to the business roundtable where he said there's going to be a new world order. You can go Google it. You can find it on the White House's website. It's not conspiratorial. Well, let's put it this way. It's not a conspiracy theory. 
it may be conspiratorial, it may be a coordinated effort, but it's on their part, not on the people who are reading into this. Yeah. And going back to uh, Klaus Schwab trying to rebrand um, an old idea like uh, government control of the means of production is not a particularly new idea. And, and that ultimately, you know, the idea that, that's, that someone either owns or controls your, your economic future is, is, has been tried in many different flavors before. And it's, it's, it's a human disaster. It also it, it, it creates world instability and it creates wars. It's very true. Um, and you know, one of the things that I found, which I thought was interesting in the research, is that not every war brings about a new financial world order, but every new financial world order has been preceded by war. That ends up being a catalyst because obviously stakes change, you know, different people come into power. It makes an easy sort of time and reason for there to be some sort of a financial reset of the system. So, you know, that's something that you need to keep an eye out for. But usually before that happens, you know, the cracks have already started to show and there are periods of chaos because it's not the outside force that really brings it about. That's sort of the final nail in the coffin. You know, the, these big economic empires, they implode from within. And that's exactly what our, you know, quote unquote leaders are doing with the United States. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So I see, and I've, uh, I've talked about this for, I guess, 15 years now, this, this, this clash of, of two competing paradigms. One, which you've been describing, and I, I very much see as well, the forces of, of centralization and, and how technology aids and abets that and, and would allow something like a Chinese social credit system, which is, which is a direct collusion of, of nominally private um, tech companies in China, financial institutions in China, and the government itself. But obviously, the government's in charge. And you, you see all of those, those ominous signs that, that you're describing in the book. But, but then there's this other thing, that the, the liberating aspects of technology and the radical democratization that comes from technology. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, what, I, I know you get into this, but I, but I assume that there's a white pill in here somewhere. There's a way to, if not stop this, 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 this collusion, like to protect yourself from it. I certainly hope so. And that's one of the things that really has stood out to me as somebody who is for free enterprise um, and small government. It's the fact that technology has gone from being this you know, force of good and democratization of opportunities to the point where you have these duopolies or oligopolies of just you know a handful of really big players that are collecting rents on everything particularly in areas that feel much more like infrastructure than private business to me one of the examples i use in the book is the uh, operating systems you know apple and alphabet those have been those are your two choices they cover 99 plus percent of not just the us but the planet so, you know, that's not free market capitalism, that's two choices, right? And 
to, and, and I will say, you know, Apple's been pretty good on privacy, right? So, but we're dependent on those same people being in charge and that could, that tenor could change at any point in time. So if those are your two choices and Alpha, Alphabet and Apple, you know, get a call from the government and they're like, I heard Carol and Matt and they were saying mean things about us. We just, we don't want them on our operating system. Then I can no longer participate in the modern economy. I mean, that's insane. So um, I think there is this sort of delicate balance there. And I also, you know, I liken these tech companies to a de facto government. I mean, in many ways today, you know, outside of the military, which, you know, we can, not to say that they, you know, they're building our armies of robots anyway, um, but, you know, they feel almost more powerful in certain areas than the, than the government. I mean, they've got much stronger balance sheets. Um, I know it's not an apples to apples comparison, but you know their market caps in many cases are larger than almost every country's GDP in the entire world. Many of them have more users than you know even the biggest countries in the world. So you know their size and scope is pretty staggering. And when you have the same players, you know, kind of around the same types of infrastructure and collecting rents and making these decisions that have to do with things like our, our private property and our free speech. Um, you know, we don't have any did, you know, bill of digital rights, so to speak, that protects those in this particular scenario. So I think that's something that we really do need to work out. And for these companies that don't have the competition and are sort of behaving as these platforms, these infrastructure platforms, I think that we need to have some rights codified. I'd love to see that come you know, f organically from the people in the industry, just like agreeing like, hey, this is a good way to move through life. And I think with AI, it becomes even more important. Um, in fact, funny aside, I had a friend who just sent me, I just before we hopped on, I tweeted about this. Apparently, there's a, some group of people who are going around and doing AI biographies on people. So there's these crazy Carol Roth AI biographies that have come out on Amazon where they're stealing photos and they must, they're, the definitive biography of like the five things about me on the internet that they were able to scrape. And you can just look at it and see like this came right out of chat GPT. So the idea that like our names and our likenesses should be protected and that AI shouldn't be able to train on things that are proprietary to us and our intellectual property, I think that, you know, this is nascent, but we, we got to get that sorted out. So industry first. And if we can't do that, then I think we're going to we're going to have to you know start with some sort of a, a government thing and try and mold that and get it right over time. It's interesting. I struggle with this as well. But uh, at the beginning of of your description, um, you pointed out that it was, in fact, government agencies. Um, and, you know, according to the Twitter files, uh, both FBI and the CIA were very much dictating whether or not Matt and Carol could have a conversation about certain subjects. And, and it could be any subject that they would decide was, was off the table. So it, in that sense, it really felt like all of the big tech companies that were having these, these weekly conference calls were were very much junior partners in that relationship, but, yeah. but, but the but the quid pro quo is probably some um, emerging content moderation legislation that would make it very difficult for competitors to to get into the market. So I, I always look for that, like when I see a really, yeah, 
I always I always look at that and I, I wonder like um, if if the government has captured big tech, how how can we hope that the government writes legislation that that rationally dismantles that power? I mean, I, I agree. I think it, it's you know, how do we say these are our rights just like they are in the Bill of Rights and just apply them to the digital sphere? I don't think we want a lot of um, you know rewriting. <laughs> I think we just want a reaffirmation because nobody's grant nobody granted us these rights they were you know they're inalienable rights and so i yeah. feel like they should be so regardless of whose fear we're in but again that's that's why i mean maybe you and i and some other people need to get together and and start this because you know if it does come from government like you said it's probably going to end up stinking at first and require lots of <laughs> <laughs> Lots of changes and shifts. Yeah, and, and they'll be happy to fix it once they break it. So, and that that's an endless cycle. So, like I always, I always hang my hat on something that I only have appreciation for as as a kind of a Hayekian economist, and that's the emergence of of blockchain and crypto. And of course, you you know the um, famous um, Hayek interview where he sort of anticipates uh, crypto as a workaround to the corruption of central bank currency. But I see our government going after blockchain, going after crypto, and trying to replace it with a central bank digital currency. And it tells me that that must be their Achilles heel. This is how um, the market or innovation or people solving problems would deal with all of this, this massive centralization that you're describing. Yeah, clearly, it is a threat to their power, right? If you control the money, you control the people, you control their economic opportunities. Uh, it's it's the greatest source of power, it's the biggest industry, financial services in the United States. Uh, there's a lot riding on them staying on top of that. So the idea that people would wanna freely trade with themselves in a currency that can't be manipulated by them is obviously super offensive. So given the fact that there are people in the know about this and understanding that decentralization is you know, one of the key selling points, what the government always likes to do, and the Fed jumps on this as well as government adjacent, uh, is they try to conflate issues. So they'll say, well, you know, I know you guys are interested in this crypto stuff, but you know, that has a lot of risk to it. We're really awesome at currency. You know, we've done a fantastic job of keeping it stable for so long. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, so we're going to make sure you have a safe digital currency with people not realizing that's entirely centralized and flies in the face of everything that a Bitcoin is trying to do. And what I've imagined is that there's probably several carrots that will be used to get people who aren't particularly financially literate into the system. One could be universal basic income. Hey, we'll offer you, you know, a long-term ongoing bribe, but it has to be in digital currency. Uh, the second might be just the, you know, exchange, bait, bait and switch exchange with people who don't understand debasement of currency. The same thing that happened, uh, frankly, when we got the stimulus checks. Right. I mean, I think you and I talked about this before. They suggest these stimulus checks and you and I are going, no, don't do it. It's a trick. And most people are like, no, no, no. I want my like twelve hundred dollars, you know, Donnie dollars or Biden bucks or whatever. And we all know that that is going to cost them seven to ten thousand dollars a year for the rest of their lives. But they don't know that. So imagine the government coming out and being like, hey, we're going to give you a hundred digital dollars 
for every dollar you 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 give us limited time offer and people are like oh i'm gonna be a millionaire and then that harkens back to that 70s skit for, with Dan Aykroyd as Jimmy Carter, where he's like, wouldn't you like to drive a $500,000 car and wear a $75,000 suit? Because, you know, people don't understand the difference between the nominal value of, of money and then the purchasing power. So, you know, I see that as a possibility. Or the third thing that could happen, you know, is with this inflation fight is if inflation persists long term, which I think is very likely to that they say, well, you know, if we go to this digital dollar, we can control inflation. And, you know, instead of having the tools that they have of, of shifting interest rates, what they'll do is, you know, when they want to disrupt demand, they'll just turn off access to spending. Like you just won't literally won't be able to spend. So I think the average person doesn't understand this. And that's going to give, you know, the sort of buy-in to the central bank digital currency which then will have you know, complete transparency and control over everything you do. And you know, on a formalized or informalized social credit basis, be able to you know, dictate how you, you know, are, work economically in society and your opportunities, which is just absolutely frightening. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Yeah, like that's that is the final nail in the coffin in a lot of ways because that that is this dystopian future where you will own nothing and and like it, um, and it it this goes full circle back to the Canadian truckers. If people want to understand what it's like if the government can just switch off your bank account or or redefine the value of your bank account and then decide that you don't have access to it anymore because you voted for the wrong guy in the presidential election, or you criticized the FBI, um, their censorship policies on social media, um, this, this is, uh, it's, it's actually worse than the Chinese credit system. Uh, or, or at least equal to it. And it, it's interesting because I think if you and I had had this conversation a decade ago, um, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but I know from my mouth, I probably would've been like, well, of course, that could happen, but it's not probably that you know likely to happen. And then we go through COVID and we see the compliance of the, the populace to this. And you see what they were willing, what boundaries they were willing to push and what freedoms they were willing to, you know, crush and what constitutional rights they were willing to just, you know, throw by the wayside. And now it's like, yeah, no, that, that easily could happen. So I don't know. Did you, has your mind shifted on that, Matt? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I. I'm more worried about about the downside, and I, I, I still try to be hopeful, but in the last three years, um, completely shaken my confidence. I've always sort of leaned on the, the wisdom of crowds and the ability of, of people to figure things out, even in, even in the most of authoritarian regimes. But uh, I don't know, like I, I have this uh, half-baked theory that part of, the, part of the problem with Americans right now is that, that we, in, in some, in many measures, we, we, we are doing quite well and we don't, 
We don't we don't worry about the things that our grandfathers worried about, like how am I going to feed my children and and am I, am I going to have a job and all that stuff. So it's um, so we're fat and happy, and and the government comes along and says, stay home, be safe. Here's a stimmy check. Um, they're just they're just like the hamster up at the the pellet machine. Say, so, yeah, give me one of those. Right. We'll de- we'll deliver you the bugs by drone. You don't have to do anything. We got you covered. You'll be happy, and you won't own anything. And uh, I think that that is a real consideration that um, you know probably wasn't the case. But I, I think you're right. You know, we're, first of all, we've never been through a period where we haven't been really prosperous. We've seen it degrade somewhat, but this is like just an anomaly in history. There's never been a period like this. And so I think it's easy to have this level of, or at least this feeling of invincibility that it's always gonna be like this. I mean, how could America not be at the center of the financial universe? Who else is there? And then I think, well, if I was in Britain, at the time when they were at the center of the financial universe, my guess is those people probably felt the same. And the other piece you said about like, you know, being fat and happy, it reminds me of that, you know, good times or bad times create strong men meme, right? And it's like, you know, you kind of go through the cycle and then the good times create the weak men, the weak men create the hard times. And I kind of feel like that's where we are (laughs) in the meme is that it's been so good. People are so delusional. They have no idea where things come from. And people don't even understand that like money is a proxy for productivity. It's just we're just so far removed from reality that now those hard times, you know, they're they're coming. Yeah, this is like this is my um, um, dilemma as someone that that really wants to um, defend the, the the rules that that allow for this kind of freedom and prosperity that that I think many Americans now take for granted. And if you look at, at, at world history, as, as you have touched on a number of times, there's this, there's this tragic cycle of, of boom and bust, and the bust can be just, just brutal and, and, and could devolve into um, wildly violent regimes and mass starvation and all the things that we saw in the, in the Cultural Revolution and, and Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Um, I would rather skip the bust and and try to wake people up, or at least those people who are awake. And I want I want to look at the subtitle of your book because all you're doing is bumming me out right now. But you you promise that you're going to tell us how to fight back. How do we fight back? So the well Easter egg for you. Um, so the the final chapter is chapter eleven, and that was a that was my my inside dad joke to myself because chapter 11 usually means bankruptcy and giving up of your possessions and i turned that on its head chapter 11 is all about shifting your behaviors um, so that you have the opportunity to fight back and let's be realistic because this is very overwhelming like you i, I don't know that we're going to be able to stop like historical cycles or human nature but we could prolong it. You know, we could make it push it like that that timeline way out. We could you know, get things into a little bit more balance. So I think that's one lens. And at a minimum, if even if we can't do that, we can set ourselves up to be strong within the chaos and to at least not, you know, completely panic. And I sort of liken it to, you know, if your house is burning down, it's a really bad time to plan an escape route and to buy insurance. 
you want to be buying that insurance and making those plans so that when that happens, you're not like deer in headlights, like, oh my God, what's happening here? You've thought this through and you, you've taken some precautions. And so this is, people have said to me, this sounds prepper-ish and not that there's anything wrong with being a prepper, but that's a lifestyle. Like if you're a prepper, like you're living that every day, like it's, you're waiting for it to come tomorrow and this is how you're moving through life. I feel like just being prepared is having that plan so that you don't have to have that burden every day and you can try to enjoy your life as you should, but know if something goes sideways that you've at least thought through it and you're emotionally prepared and otherwise prepared to deal with. So a lot of the feedback in the in the final section um, is just good financial advice that you would I would give to you anyway. But I think it takes on a new lens when you put it through um, a scenario like the one that we talk about in the, the the ten chapters plus the introduction proceeding. So since we talked about CBDC, like that's a good place to start. Like, what if there was? a CBDC and they just turned off access to your bank account. Like how, even if that like gets rectified or that's just a period of time, like what do you do in the interim? Like what do you have around you that you can barter with and trade with? Like, have you gotten any precious metals and small denominations? Or if you're a crypto person, have you, you know, thought about that? Uh, have you talked to people in your community? Like, do you know who the doctor is who's going to be willing to trade and the person who has the chickens? And like, have you just, you know, kind of been, okay, I feel like we've got our bases covered here and we can at least make it through some period of time. Maybe I've, you know, stockpiled some medicine, like whatever those things are that you need to get through periods of time and figure this all out. I think that's a, a good thing to do. Another thing that we haven't touched upon yet um, is just the, the idea that we have a lot of wealth and the government probably wants to come after that. There's almost $85 trillion that's set to turn over voluntarily via inheritance in the next 23 years. And if you look at the language that has seeped into the Biden administration, I don't think this is a coincidence. When you have Janet Yellen talking about taxing unrealized capital gains, which is a weasel phrase for we're going to just look at your wealth and we're going to take a piece of it or bumping up inheritance taxes. It's not because they want to go after the billionaires. They want you to concede that property rights don't exist and that you're fine with it for billionaires, because once you're fine with it for billionaires, you're fine with it for yourself. And so just imagine to put it like in, in layperson's terms, like your parents bought a house for $100,000 in 1970. And then all of a sudden today, Janet Yellen looks on Zillow or she just you know goes like this because that's what she always does. And she says, okay, it's worth $2 million today. And now your parents owe taxes on $1.9 million. Like where are they getting that money from? They probably have to sell the house in probably to somebody on Wall Street uh, in order to get the money to pay for that. that That's the level of things we're talking about, as well as the inheritances, that's almost $85 trillion, which would go a long way to, you know, to their unrealized or to their unfunded liabilities and our national debt and continue to expand their power. So I brought in an estate planning attorney to give some advice in the chapter to talk to people about, you know, doing some estate planning, even if you're just the average American and looking at things like trusts that we can't guarantee that they're going to be grandfathered in. But like one of my overarching themes is like do what the elite are doing 
and stop listening to what they're saying. And they're buying homes, they're buying land, they're putting these trusts together. So, you know, they're going to find a way to get a loophole for themselves. So do those things, emulate those things to give yourself the best chance of that not being sort of taken away from you when this all comes to fruition and if it all comes to fruition. And that's the rub. We don't know duration. You know, we know it's the end of the cycle. And looking back at history, it's like, oh, yeah, it's clear to see, but you're in the middle of it. So is it 12 months? Is it 12 years? Is it 50 years? I don't know. But hopefully we can push it out as long as possible. Yeah, I, I like your attitude about about prepping because I, I think it's sort of a, a miserable life to, to be expecting the world to end every day because right. I, w- I want to live my life, um, but I don't want to be naive about it because there are there are the Klaus Schwab's of the world that that want to take all my stuff. <laughs> for themselves because yeah. you'll own nothing but he's not included in that you he's part of the we part of the elite and it's funny I, I listened to you know one of the, the John Kerry clips and just like one of those insufferable people out there and you know his like oh well I don't own a private jet it's part of my wife's LLC so that <laughs> doesn't count you know kind of thing and he like basically said like, oh, well, you know, we're the, the the smart elite people and we have to go figure this out. So, you know, of course I'm going to need to get there. They just completely see the, the us and them factor. And that's a really frightening scenario when we're trying to create opportunities for everyone. But you can see that's not what the people in charge, it's not what they want because incentives drive outcomes and the incentives aren't removing barriers to get more people, more wealth. They're creating barriers to put more people on the government dole to expand their power. So this is just, again, very basic human nature kind of stuff. Very hard to argue that's a conspiracy. Yeah. Okay. You will own nothing, Carol Roth. Um, I, I see your book and you everywhere this week. So I'm wishing you well in the uh, in the sales sweepstakes. I'm sure that system's rigged too, but... Uh, <laughs> we got to do what we can do. Congratulations, and, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, the, the elite may want people to own nothing. I want people to own everything. So I hope that they will get the book, empower themselves with the knowledge, share it with others, because that's what it's all about, and, you know, ultimately fight back. Okay, where do we find you? On I, I know you're all over Twitter. Where do we find you? Find you. So I mean, yeah, this is hilarious. Like I'm on Twitter at Carol J S Roth, but like ten people see me because I'm being throttled there. And I have a website at carolroth.com that who knows when they're going to take that down. But uh, <laughs> if you buy the hard copy of the book, I'm pretty sure they can't change the words. So at least we're we're ahead with that. So raise chickens and buy paper books. That's your advice. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.